Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So, I don't know how many of you watched the final NBA championship game in 2016, I think it was, between the Golden State Warriors and the Cleveland Cavaliers. Both teams fought hard, but no one had more to prove in that game than LeBron James. When he made his big decision in 2010 to leave his teammates, they were reeling. And the owner of the Cavs was seething, and fans were so emotional that they set his jersey on fire. And so when he came back to Cleveland in 2014 with the promise of a championship, well, let's just say that Cleveland didn't really welcome him with open arms, did they? And so that's why on that last night, that game seven, the entire nation was hooked. Because LeBron James had set his face toward victory. He had made a promise to Cleveland and nothing less than a championship would do. And he had his game face on, and he played like a man possessed. Because this had been his goal all along, to bring that championship to Northeast Ohio, to silence the naysayers once and for all. And he made good on that promise. He never looked back, and the effort left him sobbing on his knees on the floor of that basketball court. The raw emotion and the relief even of having earned his place among Cleveland fans once more was a pretty powerful thing to witness. Our gospel writer for today tells us that when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face toward Jerusalem. It's kind of an odd phrase. And yet, when you watch a game like this one, and then you read these scriptures, You can't help but understand the meaning immediately. It's that game face. It's that focus. It's that single-minded heading towards a purpose, towards a goal that allows for no distraction along the way. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. He knew the fate that awaited him. He knew what would happen 
when he went. But instead of taking the easy way out, instead of going somewhere else or running away, Jesus set his face in determination and he went and he never looked back. He had three years of powerful ministry before this trip. Healing the sick, raising the dead, calming turbulent seas. But he didn't get caught up in what had already come to pass. Because he knew that the Father still had more things for him to accomplish. And his task couldn't be undone by looking behind him. He had to face the adversity that was staring him in the face. He had to face Jerusalem. It's not an easy thing to do, is it? To stare adversity in the face. Our trials, our tribulations, our adversities, difficult as they might be to look at, serve a purpose. They shape and they form who we become. And I don't mean that God gives us problems or orchestrates the challenges that we face, but God can and does use them for our good and for his glory. Do a little experiment when you go home tonight. Take a couple of pots out and set them on your stove with some water to boil. And in one pot, put a carrot. And in another pot, put an egg. And in another pot, put some coffee beans. And in about 15 minutes or so, come back and see what's happened. That carrot which was once solid and hard, in that boiling water will become soft and weak. And the egg, which was once thin and runny inside the shell, will become hard. And in that third pot will be dark, rich coffee. When we face adversity, we have a choice. Some people in the midst of that kind of stress become like the carrot. They wilt and they become weak when they're faced with the heat of adversity. They give in and they simply don't care about anything. They give up. They don't know where their strength lies. Others, as a result of the hot water they find themselves in, become hard-boiled inside. You know those kind of people. They get angry. They get stubborn. Unwilling to pursue God's will and God's ways. But the third way to endure suffering is to be like that coffee. Once the bean in that water reaches 212 degrees, It's the bean that literally changes its environment. You can smell its rich aroma. You can see the dark color transform the water in which it was brewed and the flavor. 
What was once a tasteless, odorless liquid has now become something people who love coffee say is divine. I happen to drink tea, so I don't know. But they say the hotter the water, the better the taste. This is what I love about Jesus. He wasn't afraid to go to Jerusalem. He set his face. Because he knew that God had a purpose for him there. And he went toward the adversity that awaited him because God had a plan for it. Probably one of the most frustrating things for Jeff and I as parents were the many times we faced the adversity of Children's Hospital for our oldest daughter. Interestingly enough, time and time again when we were there, God would place somebody else there who was in adversity and needed someone to talk with and needed someone to pray with. One time we met a woman who happened to be from our town, Thornville. Her son's room was right next to ours. And as we talked with her, we found out that, wow, she had been recovering from cancer six months earlier. Her husband had left her. And now her four-year-old son was in the hospital with fluid on the brain, and they couldn't figure out why. And as it turned out, we had many opportunities while we were there to pray with her and to bring God into that situation, offering comfort and peace. Despite our own frustration over one more hospitalization for Becca, God had a purpose and a plan for us there. And so we put on our game face and did what we as pastors do in those situations. Jesus faced the cross because he knew not only that there was a divine purpose for it, but in the end, there would be a resurrection. As followers of Jesus, as those called to be disciples, you and I can expect that we'll have our share of adversity as well. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say that the life of a disciple will be easy. Don't you love James and John? Lord, shall we call down fire? When did James and John ever see Jesus call down fire into the midst of a situation? They'd been with him all this time. They never saw him do that. He probably, you know, wanted to just facepalm himself and say, oh my goodness. As far as I can tell from the Gospels, a disciple is essentially one who follows Jesus, who tries to do what Jesus did, live like Jesus did, and work for the kingdom as Jesus did, and be willing to sacrifice out of love like Jesus did. Which I gather means experiencing some of the same stuff as Jesus did. Loneliness, disappointment, betrayal, suffering. There used to be a painting that hung in the Cincinnati Museum of Art for years. 
of the devil playing chess with a young man. And it shows the devil holding the queen in his hand about to set it on the board and a look of horror on the man's face. And the painting is entitled Checkmate. And for years the painting stood as a symbol of despair until one day an old chess master saw the painting. And the story has it that he stood there transfixed by that painting for quite some time. And then he suddenly smiled and said, I've got good news for that young man. After the devil makes his move, that young man has one more move. This, my friends, is why Jesus could set his face toward Jerusalem. With God, there's always one more move. Sin and suffering, pain and sorrow are never the last words in our lives. God is. And yet we find all kinds of good reasons to put off devoting our lives to Jesus, following Jesus. In fact, Jesus spells out the consequences, doesn't he? He's homeless. And to follow Jesus wherever he goes means sharing the lot of the Son of Man. And then the same thing applies in those next few instances. Following Jesus isn't a task that can simply be added to a list of other tasks. It's not a checklist. Like, first, let me go and bury my father. First of all, if that man's father were dead, that man wouldn't be standing there chatting with Jesus. He would already, according to custom, be sitting Shiva for his father. He wouldn't be out there in the streets waiting for Jesus to come through. He'd be preparing the body for burial. And the same with the next one, I need to say goodbye to my family. If that man came with the intention of following Jesus, he already would have said goodbye to his family. And we, what's our excuse for going deeper, for doing whatever it is that Jesus is calling us to, or for unstopping our ears to listen? Maybe when the kids are a little older, some say, now that I'm retired, there are a few things I want to do on my bucket list and check off first. Well, the kids have soccer or they're on a travel team, or you fill in the blank. Truth be told, there's no particularly good time to start following Jesus as he calls us to. We just do, or we don't. We can't, as Jesus says, plow a very straight line if we're looking backwards. We might as well not plow at all. And I don't think that Jesus means that last line as a threat about being fit for the kingdom, but more as a description. The other way to translate fit is useful. You won't be useful in the kingdom if you're really not sure you want to be there. Either we're disciples or we're not. But there's no halfway. My brothers and sisters, as you study with your small groups this week, as you go deeper with your small group this week, ask the question, what does it mean 
to put on your game face? What does it mean to be single-minded in your focus toward following Jesus? What does it mean for you as an individual? What does it mean for you as a family? And what does it mean to be all in? In the name of Jesus, of course. Amen. Will you stand with me as we profess our faith? In the words of the creed.